the battle for the Bible. These are the days when we are battling for the truth of Scripture. It is bad enough, folks, that the secular world, the lost world in which we live, is in attack mode against the Word of God. It has been for many, 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 many decades. You might say, how many decades? Well, in this country, more than 60, although that really started coming in in the early 60s. But even before that, back into the 1800s globally, when uh, rationalism came in, when liberalism was getting hold. By the way, uh, curiously, around the same time as Charles Darwin was becoming popular. And this has been an ongoing battle. The inspiration of Scripture, the power of Scripture, the truth of the sufficiency of Scripture— And the battle continues, and it continues sometimes in subtle ways and sometimes in very, very obvious ways. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 1, as we covered last week, it says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. We see first, we see the problem of the last days. We have seen in chapter 3 that perilous or dangerous or fierce, fierce days would come. We've seen a description of them clearly in verses 1 through 9. The last days, simply put, they are vicious and awful. And why are they vicious and awful? Because man has rejected the word of God and is in rebellion towards God. This is why we have the problems that we have. It is a simple truth. It is a profound truth. But folks, it goes so deep that a lot of people just don't want to hear it. And the reason they don't want to hear it is because they are in rebellion towards God. That's why they don't want to hear it. We know they will be also days of increased false teaching. The last days are days of increased false teaching. We covered that last week in verses 5 through 9. False teaching, now listen carefully. You might say false teaching, what does that mean? Does that mean teaching evolution? Well, that's certainly false, but that's not the issue of, uh, well, let me put it this way. It didn't used to be the issue in the church, but it has become that, so I stand corrected in that. Some churches are teaching evolution, but it isn't the issues outside the church, uh, church. False teaching, when I talk about false teaching, I'm talking about Bible teaching that doesn't teach what the Bible says. In other words, it claims to be Bible teaching, but it's not Bible teaching at all. It is man's spin, man using the scriptures to teach what he wants or his ideas. And that is not Good, but that is where we find ourselves today. Many times the false teaching will be a mixture of truth and error. Now, when you mix truth and error, you end up with error. Just like in math, positive plus a negative equals a negative, doesn't equal a positive. Keep that in mind. Many times the false teaching does this, and this is what makes it so deceptive. There is an element of truth. Many times there's a large element of truth, but then the error comes into it, and because there was a decent amount of truth being propagated, people swallow it all. Listen, you don't have to go very far with the amount of arsenic you put in a lemon meringue pie to kill the eater of the pie the consumer. And it's the same theologically. It's the same theologically. The Bible says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
you can have the truth and you put a little air in and you mess up the whole thing. There's got to be, now listen, we are living in a day when we have to get back to doctrinal purity and integrity. We've got to get back to it. And the sad thing is this air is so bad today that people are looking to people who are preaching false teaching and saying, yes, that person defines doctrinal integrity. It's gotten that bad. We can't even recognize what's wrong today. We got to get back to the book itself, okay? I know that many people will turn a deaf ear to such statements as what I'm making about false teaching, even accusing us of wrongly judging people and ministries, all right? But we need to take heed because the Bible says we need to take heed to these things. Most of the Bible is written to correct us. Do we understand that? It is to fix what's wrong with us. Boy, that rubs the fur the wrong way, doesn't it? Well, wait, I want to come to church and you tell me how great I am. Wrong church. I will tell you how great you are to the extent that God says it, whether it's a little or none. Notice I didn't say a lot because that doesn't apply. Okay, let's look at this. False teaching though, what will it do? It will wreck your life. It will wreck your life. I shared in Sunday school today. I don't usually share or do Sunday school, but I'm doing a unit on personal evangelism right now. And I shared in Sunday school this morning an email that I got, and it was from a Bible software company, and they were pulling out this excerpt from this one new study Bible that they have. And it was eight things to prove that you have, uh, what was the term? Authentic, that was the word, authentic faith. And with those eight things listed, now by the way, that is ridiculous. But anyways, those eight things listed, there is not a person on the planet who if you're honest with yourself and your shortcomings would believe that you are a Christian. And yet this is being published and put out in a study Bible. Folks, and this kind of stuff is going on all the time, the publishing industry, especially the electronic publishing industry, is going crazy with all the junk that's being pumped out today. You might say, oh, that sounds so critical and so negative. I'm telling you, this is the way it is. I wish there was good news to share with you on this. There isn't. I keep tabs on this stuff. I don't go looking for it. And you know, if you've come here for any amount of time, this is not our full ministry on talking about things like this. We talk about a lot of positive things and, and so forth. Uh, you know, how to build a strong Christian family and marriage and raise your kids right and get along with others and all those kind of things, uh, forgiveness and grace and faith. And we do all of it, prophecy. Why? Why do we do all of it? Because that's what the Bible is touches all those areas. But there are times when we have to nail things. One of the worst doctrines being taught today is something called lordship salvation. Lordship salvation. And and what that means is that you have to let Jesus be the master of your life. Live that way if you want to get to heaven. Oh yes, trust in him as your savior, but you also have to live that way 
in submission to him, being faithful to him, if you want to get to heaven. And if you don't do that, you're either not going or it proves you are never real as a believer. That is a satanic theology. I cannot, uh, there's no stronger word I could use, folks, because it is mixing the work of what that Jesus Christ did on the cross with human works, and that is not salvation. Salvation is all of what Christ did on the cross. That's why he said it is finished, paid in full. And yet many, many people are preaching it today. Lordship salvation is actually Galatianism. If you read the book of Galatians, the first half at least of Galatians, you understand what lordship salvation was. The false teachers came in after Paul had established or started those ministries. The false teachers came in and uh, he had led many people to Christ, but then the teachers came in and say, oh yes, faith in Christ is important, but it's not enough. You also must serve and be faithful and do good works if you're going to go to heaven. It's Galatianism. Today it's called lordship salvation or discipleship salvation. When you mix grace and works, you no longer have grace. And you're only saved by grace. Again, lordship salvation is Galatianism, which is a mixture of grace and works. Calvinism, another false teaching today. Calvinism, the the tentacles of Calvinism are growing, growing, growing. They're multiplying at a rapid pace all over the globe today. It is a false, ungodly, perverse theology. I don't say that with pleasure. I say it with sorrow in my heart because it is causing so much distress. And if not distress, it's producing so much self-righteousness in people's lives. It's a mentality, the haves and the have-nots kind of an idea. Anyways, I don't mean to get off on that. We've got other ground to cover. But basically, Calvinism, the heart of it would be what's called the tulip, okay? We won't cover what, that's an acronym. We won't cover what that is referring to. But one of the things that it is, is what's called unconditional election. In other words, that God looks at everyone in eternity past. He knew everyone that would be conceived or born, whichever part of it you want to look at. We believe life begins at conception. But here's the point. God would look at all humanity and what he would do is just based on nothing more than his sovereign choice, look at humanity and say, okay, everybody deserves to go to hell. I will pick a few to go to heaven. I will pick a certain percentage, 10%, 5%. We don't know the percent. We really don't. And then we are supposed to accept that and say, oh, well, okay, If you say so, you've got more theological training than I do. Listen, folks, let's say God chooses one person out of 10 to go to heaven. That means he does not allow the other nine to even have a choice in the matter. So if he predestines one out of 10 to go to heaven, he predestines nine out of 10 to go to hell. This has nothing to do with whether they have put their faith in Christ or desired what is right or any of that. And I know the Calvinists like to pick what I just said apart, but there's answers for this. Listen, that is a grotesque portrait of the God of the Bible. John 3.16 completely does away with Calvinism if you believe it as it is written. For God so loved the world, that's everybody. They say, well, it doesn't mean the world. It means the elect of the world. It doesn't 
say it, whether in English or in Greek. Doesn't say it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whosoever, who's that referring to? Well, look at the verse. The people in the world, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You mean to say it's open to all? Yes. You mean to say anybody can be saved? Yes. The Bible is full of verses that prove that and clearly state it. Clearly state it. Even 1 John 2, 2. He's a propitiation for all men, okay? Or excuse me, First John. He's not only our payment for sin, but he paid for the sins of the whole world, it says. First Timothy 2, okay? The whole world can be saved. Jesus died. He tasted death, the Bible says, for every man. Why would he taste death for every man if not every man could be saved? I mean, there's verse after verse after verse after verse. And yet people say, oh no, I'm going to follow the Calvinists. Listen, that is a false teaching today. It is a false teaching. Paul says in the last times, it will be just a matter of time before the false teachers were exposed for what they are. And this, by the way, is part of the responsibility of church leadership, local church leadership. This is one of the reasons why we need the local church This is not being divisive. This is being biblical. A pastor's job is to lead, feed, and protect the sheep. All three. There are pastors who are glad to lead, glad to feed, but they do not like the idea of having to protect because that means you're going to have to speak out on things and you may end up losing some people. But it doesn't mean that we don't have to do it. God has told us that is part of the job. And can I say this? And by the way, Paul's epistles, his pastoral epistles makes it very clear. If you are not willing to do it, you need to get out of the ministry. If you are not willing to speak out on that which is wrong. 2 Timothy 3.10, Paul says, but thou hast fully known my doctrine, my teaching, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, love, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Why was Paul persecuted? Because he preached, he says it in Galatians, the reason he was persecuted is because he preached salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's why he was persecuted. He says, if I added works into it, the offense of the cross would cease. No one would be persecuting me. But that's why he was persecuted. And Timothy knew because Timothy was discipled by Paul. Timothy had carefully followed Paul, his teaching and his example. Timothy had an understanding that what Paul was teaching was the inspired word of God. He had an understanding. These are inspired truths. See, it is not for us to simply follow what we like and ignore the rest, but this is often the case today in ministry. That's why I think a critical part of local church ministry, not all of it, but a critical part of it is that at any given time, at least one book of the Bible is being gone through verse by verse. That way you don't miss anything. You don't miss anything. Timothy also understood what the Christian life was really like because he had 
been discipled by Paul and followed Paul. Look at at 2 Timothy 3.12 and Paul says this, yay. In other words, I told you what I went through and you know it, Timothy, that it's true. Yes. Yeah, that's what yay means. Yay, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. How's your persecution going? If we are truly pleasing to the Lord and follow him, we are going to run into persecution. I don't care how nice of a person you are. It's going to come back on you sometime. It is the conflict of light versus darkness, hot versus cold, right versus wrong. It is not avoidable. If you are standing for Christ, you are going to have a conflict with that which stands against him. But the Lord will deliver us through all of it. And I get excited about that. Verse 13, but evil men and seducers shall wax or grow worse and worse. It's going to get worse, not better. Deceiving and being deceived. That's interesting. Evil men and seducers. This is referring to imposters. People who claim to be teaching the truth and who are not teaching the truth. Maybe they're not even saved. We live in such a day of naivety. Whatever names the name of Christ, people will fall for it and they'll believe that, oh, that person is is godly and they're speaking the truth. But you're not examining what they're saying. Has nothing to do with the charisma of a person, whether they're male or female, whether they're nice looking or ugly. Whether their church is big or whether it's small has nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with doctrinal integrity. Doctrinal integrity. False teachers and deceivers will become more prevalent in the church. By the way, this issue of deceiving, Jesus said, as you're coming up into the time of the rapture and then the tribulation period, this issue of deceiving is one of the major signs of the end of the last days. If not the major sign, according to Matthew 24, the word deceive is used over and over and over again in Matthew 24. I know that's mainly talking about the tribulation, but it is true. It's what God says. Deception and false teaching is not going to get better, but it's going to get worse in the last days. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, we've got Bible apps on our phone and on our iPads. We've got Bible apps on our computer. We've got it uh, in software. We've got it online, on internet. The Bible's everywhere. There's Bible study sites. Study Bibles, new study Bibles are coming out every year. There's several new ones coming out. So how in the world is it going to get worse and worse? Well, because a lot of these sources include in them, along with the word of God, they include false teaching. And people make the mistake of thinking, let's say if you have a study Bible, I'm not against a study Bible if it's good, okay, or you have discernment, but you have a study Bible and people claim to think, okay, if those notes are on the same page as the Bible, this is just subtle, okay, mentally subtle. If those notes are on the same page as the Bible, then it's all true. No, friend, only the text of the Bible you can be sure is true. You always have to be discerning. 
okay? My favorite study Bible, it's always been, still is today, is the Old Schofield, 1917 Old Schofield Study Bible. Well, pastor, don't you know that? Yeah, 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 I know it's not perfect. I know the gap theory is in there. We reject the gap theory. We don't think that that is a reasonable solution to dinosaurs and, you know, all the things, the evidence that we see, the fossils and all of that. We reject the gap theory. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a couple other places in the Schofield. I know, I know. Here's the truth of it. I got a little secret for you. There's not one study Bible on the market, as far as I'm concerned, that is 100% accurate and reliable in the study notes. Not one. There are some definitely better than others, but I don't know of one that's perfect. Not a one. But here's what happens, folks. The ones that are reasonable or that, you know, would be, okay, if you're going to get one, get one of these kind of thing. Those are not the most popular ones. The ones that are the most popular are the ones with the most false doctrine in them. That's how this is getting worse and worse, even though there's more and more Bibles. People spend more time in the notes than they do in the text. Verse 14. So what do we do? We just retreat to our house and have a group hug with our family? Does that solve it? Doesn't solve it. It's not the mission. Part of the, yeah, obviously God wants godly families and discipleship. But that's not the mission. The mission is evangelism and discipleship. That's the mission. So what do we do? It's no secret. Verse 14 gives it to us. But continue thou, see the word but, instead of getting involved in the false teaching and stuff, Tim, continue thou in the things which thou has learned and has been assured of, knowing of whom thou has learned them, and that from a child thou has known the holy scriptures. Continue thou in the things thou has learned. What did he learn? He learned the word of God. He had a godly grandmother and a godly mother. And he learned it. He didn't come to faith until later. But he learned that. And then I believe Paul was the one who led him to Christ. But it was all the scriptures, which are able, look at verse 15, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ. Jesus. So we see the problem of the last days, but then we see also starting in verse 14, the solution for the last days. What did Timothy learn? He learned the word of God. And that is the answer. Look at verse 14 again. It says, but continue thou. That's a very important word, continue. It's the Greek word for meno or meno. And it means it's the same one used in John 15 where Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. It's the word abide. It means to remain or continue or to dwell in a certain place. And where is that? We are to continue in the word of God. Timothy was not to go. Listen, now I don't know what the latest trends were back then around AD 60, But the trends come and go, don't they? We've seen it. I've seen it in my lifetime. I've seen it since we've come to St. Cloud. Different movements will come and different movements will go. And they'll have a maybe a big chunk of truth. But there's also a chunk of error in them. And I would get calls. Pastor, are you on board this new thing? And we're going to be having this meeting and all that. Are you on board with this? No, that's okay. After a while, I don't get any more calls. Woe is me. Oh, poor me. No, I I think, you know what? 
if you give me something that is solid, that is doctrinally sound, that I can agree with, I'll do that. But it usually doesn't come. Continue in the word of God, okay? He was not to go to the latest trends, the latest movements, or popular opinion, or the latest technique. Here's 10 keys that will, in a year, give you tenfold number of people in your church. We are simply to go by the text of Scripture. We go to the Lord through the Scriptures. Continue in the things that thou hast learned. What did he learn? He learned the Word of God. What was he supposed to continue in? The Word of God. Who says this? Well, Paul says it. Oh, bigger than that. God says it. God says it. God has given us a standard, and that standard is the Bible. By the way, that's why the Bible is called the canon of Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean you use it to blast people into smithereens. It's not that kind of canon. C-A-N-O-N. It means the standard or the rule. It's what other things are measured by. That's what the word canon means, okay? And we are to have a standard. There is a standard to measure everything by. It's the scripture. A man who lived on Long Island, New York, bought a high-quality barometer. When it was delivered to his home, the arrow appeared to be stuck, pointing to the section marked hurricane. According to the noted Bible teacher E. Shuler English, who, by the way, was one of the co-editors of the Schofield Bible. According to E. Shuler English, who told this story, the man shook the barometer, but the indicator stayed the same. So the man sat down and wrote a scorching letter to the store where he had bought it. The following morning, on the way to his office in New York City, he mailed the letter. Later that day, a hurricane struck the East Coast. That evening, the man returned to Long Island to find that his barometer was missing, and so was his house. (laughs) There is a clear indicator of the future that is more certain and dependable than any barometer, and all too often, we do not take it seriously. And it is the Word of God. It is God's eternal Word, the Bible. It is never wrong Even though the world says that's crazy, I can't buy it, I don't believe it, the word of God endures forever. That's why it said in 2 Timothy 2.15, study, be diligent, study. Be diligent in your study of the word is what it's getting at. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, rightly dividing the word of truth. Let me just throw a little, little other thing in here. The most popular, growing popularity, it's been very popular for years, it's growing. The most popular Bible study software that there is on the market is what's called Logos. You might say, oh, you're giving them an endorsement. Actually, I'm not giving them an endorsement. They, they bought up WordSearch. They gobbled up WordSearch, which is what I used, use. I'll use it until it breaks because they're no longer making it, but... Logos is the most popular among Bible college students, seminary students, seminary professors, teachers, and all of this. They're gigantic. Their user base is gigantic. The majority of the stuff they are producing and publishing is Reformed theology, Calvinism. People are buying the product, and some of the stuff, whether they're actually ordering it or not, is actually coming in the packages and you read who and their Calvinists, their Calvinists, their Calvinists. This is what they're getting. This is where it's going. 
what do we need to do? We need to stick with the scriptures themselves. It is the answer. The word of God is the answer to false teachers and false teaching. Paul's instructions to Timothy were clear. Tim, stick with the word. Okay, I don't know if he said this to him, probably didn't, but he could have. Timothy, read my lips. Stick with the Bible. What about so-and-so? Stick with the Bible, okay? If you were to project them 100 years later, how many of you heard this? Well, for us to understand this, what we need to do, we need to study the church fathers. How many of you have ever heard that statement? Some of you have heard it. The church fathers, that means the ones who came after the apostles and particularly those who came after 100 AD. Because if we study their writings, we will find out what the Bible really means. There's a big problem with that. Because a lot of what Paul was doing in his day was combating false doctrine in the church. And you will find that many of those quote-unquote church fathers believed in works for salvation. You let the Bible define truth and error, okay? False teaching was all over the place in the days of the Apostle Paul, the days of Peter, James, John, all of them addressed it. So don't look at the people who came after them as your source of interpretation, but you're going to hear that. If you haven't heard it, you're going to hear it more and more. Know the word of God. There needs to be a profound respect for scriptures. I love what Paul said to the Thessalonians, and I love it. What a compliment. What a compliment. I hope God can say this about Northland. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this cause also I thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now, talked about the need to stick with the word. Why is learning the word of God so critical? Two reasons. The first is this, because the Bible is inspired. It is the only book in the world, in history, that is inspired by God. What do we mean by that? Does that mean that you read it and you're moved by it? No, it's more than that. Uh, You know, many times we do read the scriptures and we're moved. But some people read Shakespeare and they're moved. Now, I don't know how that happens, but anyways, they do. Or other works. That's not the kind of inspiration we're talking about. This literally means God breathe. God breathes out the words. They are living words coming from God himself, okay? Here's how I define inspiration. God gave the writers of scripture the exact words he wanted them to write down. If God himself had done the writing, if God himself had written down each word, the scriptures wouldn't be any more perfect than they already are. It is the only book in the world that is that way. And yet, what are we seeing today? All kinds of Bibles, again, coming out. And what do they have? This new one, this is easy to read. This thing and that thing, it's easier. It's got the flow, you know, and all these kind of things. And yet there's no actual Bible text behind many of the words you'll find in a lot of the modern Bibles. Did you know that? I'm not saying all the words are not, not right. I'm just saying there's plenty of them that have been added and put in. 
In your King James Bible, the words that have been added with no scriptural backing are italicized. I mentioned that to you. So the Bible is inspired. We see in verse 16, it says this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So number one, why learning the word is so critical? Number one, because the Bible is inspired. Second Peter chapter one, it says, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But secondly, it is profitable for us. We see that in verse 16. In what ways is it profitable? God tells us that. Number one, for doctrine or teaching. The word doctrine means teaching. It tells us what is right. People don't automatically know what is right. It tells us what is right. What could be more important to learn than what God has to say about any given issue? The Bible is our lamp. The Bible is our light to show us the way in a dark world. It's profitable for reproof. The word reproof means conviction. The Bible tells us what is wrong. The word of God, when preached as it is, will convict us. This is not a guilt trip by the pastor. It is the power of scripture. If you come to church and you, you hear something preached on and, and that is in the word of God and you get mad, the problem is with you, not with the Bible and not with the preacher. It's the Holy Spirit doing what he said the word would do. The pastor is to take the word and preach its truth as it is, without apology. When he does, there will be conviction at times. So the Bible tells us what is right, doctrine, tells us what is wrong, which is reproof, conviction. Third, it's profitable for correction. The word correction means to straighten up again. The word that we get for orthopedic is found in this epinorthosis, is the Greek word. And it means to straighten up that which is crooked. We are crooked by nature. The word of God straightens us up. What a joy that is, right? I think most of us, if we've grown at all, we look back earlier in life when we say, man, was I a mess. Man, was I was so messed up. Man, my life was crooked. It was messed up. It was bent out of shape. Thank God for what he does over time. It's profitable for correction. It teaches us how to get right. Once convicted, then there is the possibility of restoration. As the scriptures are practiced, the believer is then trained by it, which leads us to our last point. It is profitable for instruction in righteousness. That means education or training. So it tells us what is right, what is wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. How to stay right. That's our training. As millions and millions can testify down through the ages, this book is a life-saving book. It will save your life from destruction. It'll save your soul from hell. When we let the word of God change us, then what happens? Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, man or woman, may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, unto all good works. The word perfect means complete or mature. The word of God thoroughly equips us for every good work. How does this happen? Just by owning a Bible? No. It's by reading it, believing it, and obeying it. 
We read it, we believe it, we obey it. And God does his miraculous work. It begins with salvation. And by the way, Jesus said, I I love the simplicity of some scriptures. Jesus said in John 13, 17, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Isn't that a profound statement? Wow. So we need to preach the word so people can know it. They can believe it. They can obey it. And God says, you'll be happy with that because I'll do a work in your life that you'll say, man, God has made some real improvements in me. Folks, the best way to battle for the Bible is to proclaim it. It defends itself. It really does. I'd say, well, don't you like locking horns with people getting in an argument and this and that? No, I really don't. And as I get older, I really am not interested. You know what? I love the idea of being able to just stand on it. Yeah, if I have to debate it, I'll do it. But just preach it. Just teach it. This is it. If you're interested, here it is. If you're not interested, you've got a problem. I hope you'll get interested. Let's close in Romans chapter 1. The central message of the scripture is what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? That Jesus died for our sins, paying them for them completely. He was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And all he's asking us to do is believe that Jesus did that for us and he will give us everlasting life. In Romans 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Do you see that one condition of being saved? Believing, trusting in Jesus Christ. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. How are you going to have eternal life? How are you going to get to heaven? By faith. Faith in what? In Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross, paid for all your sins, rose from the grave. You put your faith in him, that he did that for you, not in yourself, but in him. He will give you that moment, everlasting life. You go to heaven based on what he has done. Okay, let me illustrate it. You and me, sin, we're all sinners. God loves us, he hates our sin. But to get to heaven, you have to be without sin. No sin can dwell there. And God says, because we've sinned against him, there's a penalty that goes with that. It's death, separation from him for all eternity. God does not want that for you and me. Most people think, okay, I'll remedy this. I'll do good works. I'll go to church. I'll be baptized and all that. None of those things will save you. As I mentioned at the, at the beginning, it's not of works. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works lest any man should boast. So if the best I can do cannot save me, And if I die with my sin, I'll be lost forever. Won't somebody help me? Yes. For God so loved you and me that he gave his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, the sinless one, went to the cross, took our sin upon himself. He made the payment so we don't have to. He was buried, rose from the grave. And he says, if you believe that he did that for you, you're putting your faith in him that he did that for you, he will give you that moment ever lasting life. He'll never lose you. He'll never cast you out. I say, what if I sin in the future? It's paid for. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for all of it. Isn't it true all of your sins were in the future when Jesus died? If he paid for one of your sins, he paid for all of them. I urge you to put your faith in Christ today if you've never done that. 
Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.